0: Yeah, Colossians chapter three is where we are going to be this evening, and uh, we are continuing in our series called uh, The Church Jesus Longs For, The Church Jesus Longs For. And um, you know, as I was thinking about this series and just the the concept behind it, um, I, I realized that there are already stories within our church and that are coming out of our church that would show that we are becoming a church that Jesus would long for. Just this last week, where's Connor? Connor Breen, are you? Is he around here somewhere? He probably doesn't want to raise his hand wherever he is. Um, Connor Breen is one of our um, janitors, and uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago. I had a word about somebody who had had some brain uh, injury or trauma, and because of that trauma, they were they had a hard time thinking or impeded um, learning and that sort of a thing. And uh, I didn't really, I saw that a couple people raised their hands, and and I hope that if that was you, God touched you, and that there was some kind of improvement there. But apparently, Connor, he was back, and he was doing slides, and he raised his hand, and there was a group of students from George Fox, who saw him and went back there to the sound booth to pray over him. And he just told me this last week that he has had, you know, from football, he played football and he has had a bunch of head problems because of it. And all of the pressure, all of the pain that he once had that would keep him from focusing or just be the pain would be distracting throughout the day, Um, when they prayed for him, he felt this pressure lift in his head. And ever since then, he hasn't had any issues. So isn't that just so awesome? So... Yeah, we're um, so grateful to you, God, for doing that. I just love a church that's full of faith. They're like, I don't know if I'm going to get healed, but I'll raise my hand because I'm, I want to be like that woman that reached out and touched his cloak. You know, I, I think that's, that's part of that's, that that's becoming the church that Jesus longs for. You guys are a generous church. Um, even just this last week, there's several of you who have uh, been generous to, my, to myself and my wife personally, but as we just look through our finances as a church, you guys are incredibly generous. Like Jake said um, before, we don't give so that we can become generous. We give because we are generous. It's who God has made us to be, and you guys are generous. Thank you. Um, you guys are also prophetic. You're becoming a church that just prophesies the truth. Over Newberg, um, a number of weeks ago, about a month ago now, I, I suppose, uh, I, I preached on um, our last core value, which is that we want to leave a legacy of heaven. And um, part of how we ended that value is we actually had you guys—if you were—if you were, were there—you remember—we had you write down if you could imagine the legacy of Saints Hill being anything. If you could imagine it, go ahead and write that down on a piece of paper and then just leave that piece of paper. We collected like 100 plus little pieces of paper, and, and whether you realize it or not, you were prophesying over Newberg. You were prophesying over this church what God, the dreams that he's put in your heart for this place. Just so beautiful. Here's, a, here's just a few. I wanted to read these out. These are so beautiful. That every person who enters these doors would experience the love and the joy of God. Those aren't just like cliches. Those are true realities that people would experience God's love when they come here, that they'd experience his joy. Uh, Here's another one. There will be, this is just prophetic. I, I love this. There will be an atmosphere spiritually in Newburgh where mental health is cleansed. The dark clouds of confusion, depression, and anxiety lift to sunny skies. Come on. That's so good. Um, There were so many of these little uh, phrases or sentences about faith, and this is just one of my favorites. We are going to become a people, a church, a community, a town, a nation, a world with unwavering trust in the Lord. Just unwavering trust. I love that. One of our dreams for you guys is that, you know, we realize there's lots of college students that are going to come through our church, and you're not necessarily going to stay here in Newburgh. We believe that nations will be touched by the faith that's cultivated here. That's one of our prayers. Um, Such cool stuff. We are becoming the church that Jesus longs for. Now, um, Jesus had pretty high hopes for his church. Jesus said this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Pretty strong words. Uh, He believed that the church was valuable enough to entrust with the redemption of the world. He's like, I'd like to redeem the world. How am I going to do it? I think I'll use the church. Amazing. Um, Specifically, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the Apostle Paul's messages to the church through four different letters to these four different churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Last week, if you missed the message, please go back and listen to it. It really is the foundation for everything we're going to talk about in this uh, series. But we talked about the importance of being in Christ, and tonight we're going to look at Colossians for another message from Paul. Paul. But if we could sum up the message of Paul throughout those letters, and we could almost put them into like an art gallery or a hall of highlights, like a trophy room, what would those trophies say? What would his messages be? We want an apostle's vision to touch our church. So tonight, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be in verse 1, and we we probably could just read this and just go home. It's that good. So just soak this in, eat this up. It says this in verse 1. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Verse 9, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all and Christ is all and is in all. Verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. From our text tonight, for all you note takers out there, we just have like one point, and this is it. The church that Jesus longs for is a church that triumphs over sin. A church that triumphs over sin. Uh, the history of Colossae is kind of an interesting one. Um, it's in inner city, uh, or it's in inner Turkey uh, from the coast. If you can find Ephesus out here at the coast, if you just kind of go directly parallel over, there's Colossae in inner uh, Turkey. It, it's not much to see. Next slide. I think we have a photo of it. Yeah, there's not really there much there anymore. Uh, it had its heyday in the 4th century BC. Um, it, and, it, and by the first century, the city of Colossae could really only be described as a small town. When I was reading about it, I thought, oh, it's kind of like Newburgh is to Portland. It's a very small town in comparison to Ephesus, which is this large metropolis, Um, And the city in Colossae was, uh, the the church in Colossae was started by one of Paul's friends. Paul had actually never been there before he wrote this letter. But to him, it doesn't matter. A difference in culture doesn't make a difference with the truth. And so the consistent message of this letter is this. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection, and here is how you live like it. The backdrop to what we just read this evening is uh, this text from chapter two of Colossians. It says this, "'For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives "'in bodily form, "'and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. "'In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision, "'not performed by human hands. "'Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, "'was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. "'Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, just stunning truth here. I'm not even going to go fully into it. I'll just let your imagination sort of take over as you read a a text like that. But the truth is that when Christ died, you died. When he was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. This is why baptism matters so much. It is the physical act of the cosmic death and the cosmic life you are now living because of what Christ did. And when you're in Christ, when you get baptized into Christ, all of the benefits of Christ now come to bear on your life in the present. Look down at your Bibles, verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand Of God. There are so many beautiful theological truths in this text, and uh, we're going to revisit this text later on in this series. There's so many things that I wanted to get to. I think I rewrote this message like four times this week, Um, but there's just really one thing that I want to hone in on tonight. I think it's important for us to get as a church, and it's this. Since you have been raised, you triumph over sin, since you have been raised, you triumph over sin. Uh, when I, I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. And for those of you who don't know my story, it wasn't like I left this incredible life of sin behind. I had been, you know, like involved in all these horrible things. But I really lived for myself. Maybe some of you can relate with that. My primary goal in life was making sure that I got out of life what I desired to get out of life, even if it came at the expense of those around me. I had this miserable life focus on my lack. My whole life was driven by I lack this, I need this, I need to work hard so I can go get that. And when I was 17 years old, I remember I encountered God's love in such a way that it it so touched my heart deeply that I began to get full of love. So I wasn't focused on my lack and I began to love people that I didn't think were possible to love. And I began to actually change the focus of my life to be on other people rather than on myself. I remember that, that was my, after, right after my junior year. I come back from my senior year in high school, and some of my friends were like, you are like an entirely different person. What happened to you over the summer? And I'm like, I met Jesus. They're like, I've heard that before, but didn't look like this. You're totally different. I didn't hang out with the same people. I didn't do the same things. My life was changed. So many things that I struggled with, so much sin that I had had in my life, just in a moment, gone. How many of you guys have ever had an experience like that? It's just like you met Jesus and everything changed. You don't have to be shy. This is like a beautiful thing to say, the Lord did this in my life. What What an amazing thing. If you're here this evening and you haven't had that happen, it's possible, and it's possible tonight. But, you know, to be honest, I still had sin in my life. I still did things that were just completely out of line with the gospel, And even today, there are still places in my life where sin seems more accessible than the mind of Christ in a given moment. So so what do you mean, since we've been raised with Christ, we triumph over sin? It it seems a little bit more difficult than that, doesn't it? How how do we do that? Well, I think we first have to start with what is sin? Um, If you're taking notes, write this down. In Genesis chapter three, we get a definition of sin. And many of you guys have read uh, Genesis chapter three. You know the story. I'll let you reread it if it's been a while since you've uh, dipped in there. But up to this point in the story of the Bible, God defines what's good and what's not. At the end of every day, he saw what he made and he's like, that's good. But then there's this moment in Genesis chapter three where Adam and Eve are presented with this fruit. And when they're presented with this fruit, They're presented with a choice. Do we talk to God about what is good and what isn't good? Because he said this wasn't good. Or do we take on the role of defining what's good and what's not good? And you guys know the story. What is sin? It's define, I will define for myself what is good for me. I will seek autonomy so that I can make my own choice, and that's exactly what happens in Genesis chapter three. If you're taking notes, write this down. Sin is agreeing with the enemy. Agreeing with God would have been, well, hang on a second, God said this, so I can't believe that. But sin, from the very beginning, is this. It's, well, he's saying that, and I don't know, it says in the text, the fruit looked pretty good, It looked desirable for gaining wisdom, so I I think I'll do that, agreeing with the enemy. And and here's a little secret. Every sin that we read listed out in this passage, malice, greed, lust, rage, all of those, you must disbelieve God's goodness in order for those things to function in your life. I'm going to say that again. Malice, greed, lust, rage, impatience, all of the the stuff that we read in this text, in order for those things to function in your life, you have to disbelieve in his goodness. You cannot believe in his goodness, and those things coincide in your life. And and because of that, sin will always lead to death. God, we learn at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when he speaks, life happens, So when you agree with God, guess what you're doing? You're endorsing life. You're like, I just want to endorse life. I love life. I want life to happen everywhere, so I'm just going to agree with what you're saying. That endorses life. The accuser, the enemy, speaks lies, or he speaks death, so to agree with him endorses death. And so if you're outside of Christ, sin is a huge problem because you're endorsing death everywhere you go, and you're like, why does my life feel like death? because you're agreeing with the enemy who speaks death, rather than agreeing with God who speaks life. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, verse 13, you were dead in your sins. When you're in sin, it shrivels your soul, it kills you. In Romans chapter six, Paul gets even more intense and he says, you were slaves to sin. You didn't even have, you you sinned so much, you didn't even have a choice in what you did, you had to become obedient to sin. Isn't that fascinating? Now, there's really two types of slavery that sin results in. And and the first is, is really common. We all know it. It's slavery to sin. It's being obedient to doing the things that you know are out of line with the truth. But there's another type of slavery that sin results in, and that's this. It's slavery to the law. Becoming enslaved to a sacrificial treadmill, if you will trying to make amends for what you have broken, but never quite getting there. In Colossae, they had two problems with sin in their church. The the first problem came from those who were Greek, who were a part of the church. And their mentality was this. In our culture, it's live today, die tomorrow. What you do with your body is no big deal. So just do whatever you want. That was one pressure in the church. The other pressure was very Jewish. It was this. Hey, listen, all of you new Greeks coming to faith, you need to follow the law if you want to make amends for what you've done wrong in this life. And either way, it's slavery. It's slavery. So slavery to sin looks like this. It's the, The obvious way sin entraps you is it does a few different things. It reinforces the idea that you are your own, that your decisions have no consequences beyond you, and you can do whatever you want. It's that that voice. It's like, oh, come on, really? That it's not that big of a deal. I know everybody makes it a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. Nobody's going to find out. What was the first sin? It was don't talk to God. Make your own choice. Seek autonomy. And that's what sin does is it actually, well, you, you can, you've, you've seen people, maybe this has even been you, they get, when people are stuck in sin, they are terrified of family where they could be truly known because sin lies to us and it tells us that you'll never really be loved if people knew who you really were. And so it's sin, it, just, it enslaves you by pulling you outside of family. I, I've been there. Have you been there? I've been there. And and because of this, sin can actually control you. In the garden, we learn that God gives us a choice. He says, you you have choice. You can eat from that tree if you want to. But I I really, I I commend you. Don't eat from that tree. Eat from this one over here. But sin actually minimizes that freedom. It's fascinating. Sin has so become a part of our culture that we've begun to define our right to sin as freedom. Freedom is not the ability to choose whatever you want. Freedom is picking the correct tree. Sin also will end up sowing a seed in your life that will reap a harvest that you probably don't want. Galatians 6-7 says this. This is just a stunning passage. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Look around in our culture. Many, you you see this happen all the time. People are shocked when evil comes their way or when evil sprouts up in their life. But all they've done is they've spent time sowing to please their flesh. It's not a surprise. What you sow, you will reap in this life. The things that you do in this life have consequences and will change how you see the world, what happens to you in this world, and what sort of power you give over to the enemy in your life. I I, I don't think I need to beat this drum any longer because I think that most of us in this room are familiar with that type of slavery to sin. We're like, yeah, Jesus saved me from that slavery to sin. Praise be to God that I don't have to worry about destruction or condemnation. I'm blameless. I'm so glad. And if you, if you aren't free tonight, tonight is the night of salvation. You can get free tonight. But there's another type of slavery to sin that in the church, I believe we have sanctified and approved of, and it's this. Slavery to a way of cleaning up sin that is sweaty, If you've been around our church, you've heard us use this before. In our church, anything where your effort is more vital than the work of Jesus, we call it sweaty. It feels a little sweaty. In Colossae, new Christians coming into the church were being persuaded that they needed to follow the law in order to follow Christ, and Paul is not happy. He's furious. Rather than living in the freedom of relationship with Christ and the internal law of the Spirit, they were pressured to adhere to the Jewish law. It was like, oh, hey, Chris, you just started following Jesus? Oh, awesome. So, so happy for you, man. But listen, Jesus was a Jew, like us, we're Jews, and I don't know if you know this, but we're a little bit different in some particular areas, and uh, so we're going to need to circumcise you. How about Tuesday uh, next week? Would that work? And we're like, you think you got damaged by your church? Holy cow. <laughs> um Instead of dealing with sin through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it was instead dealt with by the Jewish law. Now, I don't look at our church and see anybody trying to make people adhere to Judaism to follow Jesus. I think we've moved beyond that, but what I do see are attempts to deal with sin in the church that don't reflect the triumphant theology of being resurrected with Christ. Our method is, for putting sin to death must reflect the triumph of the cross regardless of our personal behavior. So, we need a new creation, truth-based way to put sin to death for freedom to increase in this house, right? So here's what I want to do this evening. This is a little bit of a deep dive. I need you to put your thinking caps on. If you're not awake right now, just like slap yourself a little bit. Wake up. Here's what I want to do. I want to look at some of the most audacious passages about those who are in Christ and what happens when they happen to sin, and I want to develop a language and a strategy for putting sin to death that reflects the resurrection. So take notes, snap photos of these slides. We got four different passages we're gonna look at. The first is this, 2 Corinthians chapter five. It says this in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, remember that language from last week, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. When you are in Christ... You have an entirely new life that is afforded to you. Your sinful life, guess what? It's gone. Your slavery to sin is gone, period. You didn't get an upgrade. You didn't get a remodel. You got a whole new you. You still have a memory. There are still things that you put to death in line with your identity, but your essence has changed. Jacob Vigil, he, he, he uses this analogy. It's not like God made this masterpiece painting that was you, and then you said, you know, I'm gonna, I, I want to paint my own picture, God, thank you very much. And you got the paints out, and your sin was marking up the painting and kind of ruining the painting. And then you said, oh my gosh, I ruined this beautiful painting you did, God, I'm so sorry, will you please fix it? And God's like, you know what, yes, I'll just paint a bunch of white over it, and I'll just cover it with white. There you go, you're pure. That's not what he did. What God did is he's like, oh, yes, that's a ruined painting, here's a new painting, Here's a whole new life. You get a whole new existence. Later on in this passage uh, of Second Corinthians, or uh, what is it, yeah, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, which is one of our core values here at the church. Here's the truth. The identity that you carry How you see yourself this evening will pull you into one lifestyle or the other. You can do all the discipleship programs you want, but it won't make a difference if you believe that you're destined to be a sinner. But that's not the truth. The truth is this. You're not destined to be a sinner. You've become his righteousness. So there has to be a decisive moment in your life where you say, I can't see myself this way any longer. I've become his righteousness. Next passage, Romans chapter six says this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, But alive to God in Christ Jesus, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. There are so many implications of this passage, but here's the deal. We are those who died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? We're dead to sin. It's not for us to live in any longer. We got got rid of it. When Jesus went into the grave, we went with him. The cross was the largest mass killing of all time. Those who had, those with faith died with him so that when he was raised, resurrection life was our new reality, period. That's what happened on the cross. And the important part for every believer to truly consider is that they are fully dead to sin. Okay, so quick little rewind. 1 Corinthians Uh, chapter, or I'm getting this wrong every time, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you have become his righteousness. Romans chapter 6, what is the truth? You are dead to sin. So I am his righteousness, and I'm dead to sin. Two identity statements. Beautiful. Next, Hebrews chapter, chapter 10. Hebrews 10 does this deep dive on the Jewish law, which could atone for sin through the sacrificing of bulls and goats. And the author of Hebrews is essentially saying they could never really make anyone clean from sin, period. Here, here, here's what it says. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would, ha- would they have not stopped being offered For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, pause for a second. Oh, gosh. This is nuts. This right here is giving us the definition of what a bad sacrifice is, and it's saying the Jewish system was a bad sacrifice. Here's here's what it's saying. It doesn't make people perfect. So the author of Hebrews is like, we need a better sacrifice, one that makes people perfect. Because this whole Judaism law thing, it's not making people perfect. Secondly, it needs it, it, th- this sacrifice. It needs to be offered continually, so there's always something that we have to do all the time. Sounds sweaty. Number three, it doesn't clean you once and for all. You know what would be awesome is if there was a sacrifice that would clean you once and for all. Wouldn't that be great? Fourth, it makes you feel guilty. You look at those goats and those bulls, and you're like, oh, jeez, Every year I have to watch these guys get their throats slit. It's just horrible. And it reminds you of your sin. It's like all I'm thinking about is my sin all the time. It's all, that I, it's all that I think about now. Okay. What if there was a sacrifice that could do away with all of those things? Jesus comes and he makes a final sacrifice. Here's what it continues to say in Hebrews 10. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. (laughs) Let, Let me propose to you this evening that if Jesus made a perfect sacrifice once and for all that these things are true. Jesus' sacrifice accomplishes, one, making you perfect. Don't argue with me, argue with Hebrews. Two, you don't need to sacrifice in your life to get rid of sin. Jesus' sacrifice was enough. It was once and for all. Three, you are cleansed once and for all. You're clean. Four, you can't feel guilty because a perfect sacrifice removes your guilt. Five, you get to forget about your sin just like God forgets about your sin. Now, some of you are mad at me right now. You shouldn't be mad at me. You should be mad at Hebrews. What the Jewish law failed to do repeatedly, Jesus did once, perfectly. What the Jewish law failed to do repeatedly, Jesus perfectly did with one sacrifice. Unfortunately, many methods for getting rid of sin in the church reflect the belief that you are a sinner, that you should feel guilty, remember what you have done, and the worse you feel, the better chance you have of not doing it again. And then we have sanctified this process by requiring some sort of duty to make atonement for our sins. Serving at church, being generous, reading the scriptures, praying, This ignores the sacrifice that Christ has made and is completely antithetical to the truth of the gospel. Believers are those who have been made perfect. (laughs) How do you see yourself tonight? Cleansed once and for all. No longer need to feel guilty over their sin that's been repented of and forget about their sin just like he does. That's That's our portion in Christ. Look, I I know that it seems maybe too good to be true, so you're like, oh, I'll just zone out for a little bit because that's just probably not true. Maybe he's just a little better than you think. Maybe his sacrifice was just a little bit more complete than you thought. Go read Hebrews 10, guys. Finally, we get to this text this evening, Colossians chapter three, and this is what it says. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now I know that this is in the room. You're like, you don't know my life. You don't know my story. Guess what? He, got ri- he killed your story so that you could have his story. You, you don't know how I'm wired. Guess what? When you were in the womb, he created you and made you. I'm not sure, Alex, if it's even possible to get free from sin. Here's what uh, one of the commentators I read this week said. Can we really put to death the earthly nature? Well, we can see the evidence of the opposite process in which persons have put to death compassion, kindness, humility. So it must also be possible for individuals to kill such things as lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, etc. The power comes from having been raised with Christ. The irresistible compulsion to sin is replaced by the irresistible power of God. It is possible... I feel like sometimes we just need to like hear it in the church. Like you cannot sin. Did you know that? You can leave this room and not sin again. It's possible. Jesus paid for it. If you think that you can leave this room again and it's impossible for you to never sin again, then you are in disagreement with the scriptures and with the sacrifice of Jesus. Don't disagree. Endorse life. Endorse life. What you Jake talked about this earlier. What we declare over ourselves is often what we see happen. How how many of you guys know, okay, I'm going to preach a little bit for a second. How many of you guys know that in the moment when Jesus sits across from Peter and he says, do you love me, he was asking Peter to declare something that it might become true. That's why he gave him three opportunities. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. What was he doing? There was power released with the declaration that he spoke. See, um, God in the beginning, he speaks things and they come to be. And then he says, oh, and I've made you in my image. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but one of the things that it means is that we have the ability, it says in the scriptures, the power of life and death is in the tongue. When you speak, you are aligning yourself either with God or with the enemy, And as followers of Jesus, we're to speak life over one another and continually speak life over ourselves. Speak Hebrews 10 over yourself. Speak 2 Corinthians chapter 5 over yourself. Speak the truth of Colossians chapter 3 over yourself. Since I died, I have been raised. I live a resurrected life. Thank you, Father. There's something in the speaking of truth that releases breakthrough and freedom in your life. So even let's say this right now. Thank you, God, that I am free. Thank you, God, that I have peace with you. Thank you, God, that it is your intention to bless me. Thank you, God, that I'm in line with Abraham, that you intend to use me to bless the nations. Something was just released over you. Do you feel that? (laughs) Do you feel that? The Holy Spirit is called a a wind that, that blows and ignites embers and fires. And when we choose to use our tongues to speak with the Spirit, what we're doing is we're choosing to blow on the things that God has birthed in our hearts that might be just little embers until they ignite into a fire. I want to point out to you that in this passage in in Colossians chapter 3, notice how you are being renewed. Look down at your Bibles verse 10. It says this, and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Transformation in life is a two-part thing, and the first part of it is belief. It's having correct knowledge in our minds. It's setting our minds Where Christ is seated. Now, what exactly does that mean practically? I don't think that it means that I spend my whole time, whole life focusing on heaven. Like I, I, I'm just gonna think about, I'm, I'm not here for very long. I'm just gonna focus on where I'm gonna go when I die. I, I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think what he's saying is set your minds on the place where Christ rules from. The heavens are open. Jesus is on the throne ruling. And so my primary focus is on that fact and the truth and the power and the love over my life because of that fact. That's what I'm spending all my time thinking about. Now, how many of you, just by a show of hands, you're familiar with neural pathways? Any of you guys, you've heard of, yes, everybody's heard, heard of neural pathways. It's very common knowledge today. Um, I, I've heard somebody describe neural pathways. Well, it, here, for those of you who don't know, it's the idea that as you think, your synapses can, as they, as they connect with one another, they actually create channels in the physical part of your, in your brain. And those channels are like little highways, and so, and so if you're very used to thinking a certain way, you'll constantly think that way because it's very easy for your brain to travel that highway. And if you don't think another, another way, like even right now as I'm presenting like Hebrews 10, you're like, I don't think that way. That's like a tiny little dangerous walking trail in my mind. That's not like a highway. Um, it, it, here's, here's how I've just heard it described. I've heard it described almost as like, if you have a block of cheese and you have a hot marble, and you drop that marble into the block of cheese, it would create, you know, a pathway as it went travel, and traveled through the block of cheese. Our brains are almost uh, blocks of cheese. <laughs> They're like that. And, and, and so here's what Paul is telling us to do. He's like, build a five-lane highway to the thoughts of God and his ruling ability rather than your ability. Set your mind on things above. Constantly return to those thoughts. When you sin, where you focus reveals what is saving you. When you sin, where your initial thinking goes reveals what you believe is saving you. When you sin, if you go, oh my gosh, I did it again. Okay, God, I promise, I'm never doing that again. Guess what's saving you? Your resolve. If you sin and you go, oh my gosh, okay, Okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. Okay, I'm actually going to fast tomorrow, God, and, um, and probably just like breakfast and lunch because I'll get pretty hungry by the end of the day. And, and, then, and then I'm going to read a bunch of my Bible tomorrow morning, and that's going to do it. Guess what's saving you? Your effort to do the things of God. What? That's not what saves you. Introspection is not a value in the kingdom. <laughs> I'm going to get emails for this. Introspection isn't a value in the kingdom. Kingspection is a value in the kingdom. <laughs> Set your mind on things above. When was the last time you got super introspective and you left hopeful? You're like, "Man, just taking a look at all that got me full of hope. I got joy." You know, but the scriptures say that we go from glory to glory. So there's no part of our journey that's meant to actually take us down so that we can go up. It's like, you came to the foot of the cross. That was pretty down. And he's like, okay, from now on, you're going from glory to glory. So lift your eyes, gaze at me, and you're going to become like me. So, so, so what, if I sin, not when I sin, if I sin, here's my mental matrix, six truths. I am free and responsible. It was my choice to sin. I made a choice just like Adam and Eve had in the beginning. I chose to sin. I chose to act out of line with the character that has been purchased for me. I'm free and responsible. Number two, I have been saved from the power of sin and made righteous. Number three, there is power in my confession of sin and in my declaration of righteousness. Number four, What I did cannot separate me from God's love, Romans chapter 8. Number five, I am completely clean and pure, according to Hebrews chapter 10. And number six, the heavenly mind is not sin conscious, so I'm going to forget about it and think about what He has given me, according to Hebrews chapter 10. So next time you sin, here's what you do. You go through the list. Here's the truth about me. I need to, I need to repent of my sin. We're gonna get there, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak these truths over me based on the scripture. I, I, just, I have these truths in my mind because I wanna drill these into my brain pathways so that my response to sin isn't despair, it's victory. It's in line with resurrection. Despair will only lead me to fear and to sin eventually. But to place my focus on him and believe what he has done for me actually transforms me into his image with ever-increasing glory, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you gaze upon him, you become like him. If you don't believe me, just look it up. So if you are here tonight and you are a believer in Christ and you make a decision to sin, then what do you do? What do you do? An example that Jake and I um, have heard and, and we like to use is let's say that you're walking along a beach. Barefoot, and you step on a nail. When you step on that nail and it's hurting, it's throbbing, blood's pouring out, do you look at the nail and think, Gosh, I'm such a nail. I'm just going to need to find a hammer now to beat myself with because I've, I've become a nail. No. You say, Oh, I stepped on a nail. Even if you meant to. I meant to step on this nail. That was stupid. It doesn't make me a nail. I'm going to address the issue, remove the nail, and I'm going to keep on walking. Your ability to do something doesn't make that thing your identity. My ability to sin doesn't make me a sinner. I'm a saint. But I still have free will. I still have choice. Look down at your Bibles, verse 12. It says this. He's saying, This is who you are. Since you have been raised, dress like it. Clothe yourself. Dress like it. He made a purchase on the cross for a new set of clothing altogether, and all that is left for me is to put it on. That's all that's left for me. You know, um, I I really love clothing. Um, I've tried to not like clothes, but I like them, so I'm sorry. I love clothing, I'm like, my wife jokes about it all the time, I'm always like, fashion week in Milan, what's going on? Fashion week in Paris, what's going on? It's foreign to Newburgh, I know, but I'm, I'm weird. Um, and, and, and whenever I, I see a new uh, article of clothing that inspires me, and, and I want to buy it, what do I do? I ask my wife first, no. <laughs> um, whenever I see a new, a new article of clothing and I want to buy it, what I do is I imagine what I would look like wearing it. I I even think of the experiences and how much better my life is going to be if I just have this article of clothing. I'm like, oh, I'm going to wear that and all of a sudden it's always going to be sunny and I'm going to be hanging out with my friends and my car is never going to break down. It's going to be so awesome if I have those shoes, right? I, I imagine a whole world when I see an article of clothing. I know it's probably just me, but that's what I do. And this is the first step in repentance is to imagine yourself differently. Oh, man, I would look amazing with forgiveness on. Wouldn't that be awesome, clothing myself in forgiveness? Oh, oh fall, winter, 19, Humility's so hot right now. <laughs> I have to get some humility on. It's going to be amazing. Ooh, a little gentleness would go well with the kindness that I already have. Oh, I should get some of that. (laughs) This is what he's trying to do. He's like, get your imagination engaged. What would it look like if you clothed yourself with kindness? What would it look like if you put on humility? Oh, you would look awesome. It would be amazing. See, in the kingdom, we're not, we're, we're not told to not do things. We're told to exchange one life for the other. So when you sin, you simply say, oh, I was not acting in line with the truth about who I am. I recognize my sin, I changed my mind, and I have a new set of clothes in the wardrobe to put on. It's not a time to despair. It's not a time to get upset. It's not a time to, to whip yourself. It's a time to go, oh, it's time to change clothes. This isn't in line with who I am. Repentance means this, imagine again. I I, I don't know if you know this this evening, but we don't repent of sins. Did you know that? We don't repent of sins. The power of sin is getting you to agree with a lie. Specific sins don't need to be repented of. It's the mindset that leads you to trust a lie over the truth that needs to be changed. What, what good does repenting from a sin do? It's like, oh, I guess you were sorry for doing that one thing. But the, the truth is this. Our actions are never disconnected from a belief. So repentance isn't complete in, until the belief moves from the lie to the truth. Imagining the truth of what Christ has done, sinking into you so deep that the kingdom gives birth in your life. Those are his intentions. So that you see that the sins are just, those are just the surface things that are bubbling up. The deeper issue is I don't trust him. I have to exchange the lies I've been believing about him. I need to repent of what I've been believing and believe anew. That's why Jesus, when he first comes, he says this, repent and believe for the kingdom is here. Because for all of us, there's an entirely new kingdom to be believed. I I know that this is a ton of information, and hopefully you'll go back and you'll listen to the message, but I I want to end with one last example that I've found very helpful. I I just heard this this last week from a gal named Wendy Backlund. Um, Her and her husband, Steve, have a a ministry uh, that really focuses on truth, and and she says this. She says, you know, when a toddler learns to walk, everybody cheers, It's like, oh my gosh, they took took their first few steps. Some of you parents in the room, you know what it was like. It was like, oh my gosh, they're taking steps. And and, and you know what you do? You you cheer because you think, oh, it shows they're going to be a walker. We have a walker on our hands. This kid's going to walk. It's going to be awesome. But, But if you're a parent in the room, you know that there were like hundreds, maybe like Thousands of times where that kid tried to walk and fell down. So let me ask you this. Why do you use that one example of your kid taking a few steps to inform you of their identity and what's true of them in the future rather than using the thousand other times they fell down to inform their identity? Because you know that those first few steps are only gonna become more steps and they're gonna get stronger and they're eventually going to fully walk and never fall down again. The church that Jesus longs for is a church who triumphs over sin by repenting and believing the truth. So we look at each other's lives and we go, that was such a joy. You're a saint. That was such kindness. You're a saint. And we stop looking at the times that we sin in our lives to qualify our identities rather than what he's accomplished on the cross. Let's stand up together.